My name is Caitlin. If I don't know you or if you are new here, we are really glad that you're here. Um, as a local expression of the family of God, we seek to embody the gospel in all areas of life, in the Arcadia area specifically. We are one church with 10 congregations, and we are gospel-centered in what we do here, but we focus on being outward-focused in that ministry, and we believe that all of life is all for Jesus, not just what we do here together on Sundays, even though we really love that. Um, I've got a couple of announcements for you. First, there is a Fallapalooza. I like that word. Thank you. Thank you, Greg. Um, it's going to be on Saturday. It's going to be outside. There will be trunk or treat. There will be a chili cook-off. Is there anyone in this service that's making chili? Please raise your hand. Yes, there's at least three hands. I'm going to be here for the chili, and then I'm going to leave. Um, so there will be chili. There will be uh, carnival rides. There will be games. There will be trunk or treat. So we really hope you come. It's from 5.30 to 8, and I want to make sure you RSVP so we have enough chili because I'm going to eat all of the chili. Uh, secondly, we have a membership class, and that's going to be November 3rd and November 10th from 6.30 to 7.45 here. There will be food, so we also want you to RSVP to that, so there will be enough. And lastly, there is a women's social, so if you like to socialize, if you don't like to socialize, but you want to get better at socializing, that's going to be at the Kluzman house. So if you RSVP online, you will get the address that way. It's from 7 to 9 p.m. Uh, hey, Jennifer. What's up, girl? I hope you're going to be there. Um, Jennifer's great. I really hope she's there. If she's there, then everybody should go. Um, so those are all of the announcements that I have for you. If you would please stand for the reading of God's word. Thank you. Good morning. Today's word is from John 14, verses 25 to 31. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the world, ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. This is the reading of the word. You may be seated. All right, thank you, Sherry. Good morning, Arcadia. Good to see you all. If you're new, we're glad that you are here. Uh, my name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are working our way through the Gospel of John, and we're going to do the second part of chapter 14 of John today, and that's, that's the only place we're going to be today in Scripture, and so if you would turn in your Bibles there, if you need a Bible, we have Bibles back by the giving boxes. Um, you can also use, obviously, your phone if you want to just um, find your Bible app and do it that way. That would be great as well. I think we're ready to go. What? I'm, I'm really old. I can't hear what you're saying. So, I was going to talk about what? Oh, my goodness. That's right. I don't have a note here. I forgot to write the note. This, 
This is even better than Fallapalooza. This is the annual work day. <laughs> so we're doing this on November 5th, 6th. I'm going to go down and start over. Would that be all right? Because this is just not going well. Anyway, Saturday, November 6th, from 8 to 12, we are going to have food on either side of the 8 to 12. So we'll have breakfast-type stuff, you know, uh, pastries and whatever, and then we're going to have a full lunch uh, after the workday at noon. And so we would love your help. We do this uh, once a year, even though we need to do it twice a year, but we are doing it once a year right now. And so it's time to do that. And so we'd love for you to sign up for that. All kinds of projects that uh, Brennan and the team have put together for us to do. So please uh, be aware of that. Uh, Saturday, November 6th from 8 to 12. Please come. Please sign up, okay? Uh, all right. So we're working our way through John. And chapters 13 through 17 are really the last night of Jesus' life before the crucifixion. And chapters 14 through 17, which we started last week, are what I like to call Jesus' famous last words. And if they're not famous, they really, they really should be. Jesus is with his best friends, and he's explaining to them on this last night the life that they're going to have and the ministry that they are going to conduct after Jesus goes away. In other words, after his crucifixion and his resurrection. Last week, we looked primarily at Jesus' saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We looked at the fact that Jesus claims to be God and that he is the only way to salvation, that the only way to be reconciled to God, the only pathway to redemption is, in fact, through uh, Jesus. And today what happens is he tells his guys and he tells us a number of things, but one of the things that he tells us is that if we really truly love him, we will keep his commandments. And so we're going to talk a lot about uh, what that means. But he also tells them, and he tells them again a couple of more times during this last night treatise, um, that, that he knows how hard it is to keep his commandments, that he knows that our flesh, even as believers, rage against that idea, and so we need help. And so he's going to send this person that he calls the helper. Uh, the Greek word is parakletos, which we call paraclete, and we'll talk about that as well. But it's the Holy Spirit that he's going to send. It's not that the Holy Spirit is new, but the Holy Spirit is going to have a brand new role after the, the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. And so the Holy Spirit is going to come for them and, and be with them. And the Holy Spirit is here even now with us in this room. The question isn't, should we invite the Holy Spirit in? The question is, will we welcome him because he's already here? That's the key. We need to welcome him into our lives. Now, Sherry read from, four, from 25 to 31, but we're actually going to back it up and start at verse 15. And I, I feel like I say this every single week. There's a lot here, and we're going to leave a lot on the cutting room floor. I understand that. But it's a great passage, and we want to dive into it. One other thing, though, uh, before we get started that I think we need to see in this passage. The disciples perceive Jesus' impending death and departure as a downgrade. But what Jesus is trying to explain to his disciples is that this is actually going to be an upgrade. 
that he's leaving. Because the Holy Spirit is coming, and because by the power of the Spirit, the church is going to do even greater things than when Jesus was here on the earth. I know that's a tough sell, especially if you've been uh, hanging out with Jesus for three years, but that's actually what's going to happen, and that's what he's trying to explain to them. So let's look. I'll read through this entire passage a little bit at a time, and we'll just talk about it. So verses 15 through 17, which is where we left off last week. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because the world neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So Jesus is going away. But the fact is we still need his presence, and that's going to be the Holy Spirit, the helper. And, and as I said, in verse 16, the Holy Spirit is called the paraclete. And the, the, the definition, or the, what that word truly means, is a paraclete is one who resides with us and who comes to our aid. The word also has all of these other meanings as well, and I want to walk through them quickly. Number one, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, is our comforter whenever we face affliction or suffering or tribulation or trials, so he's our comforter. The paraclete is also our advocate. In the midst of our trials and our challenges, the, the, the Holy Spirit will advocate for us and encourage us and guide us and give us wisdom to be able to do that. The Holy Spirit is also our helper. That's uh, how Jesus describes the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Holy Spirit helps us when we need to shun foolishness, when we need to embrace wisdom, and when we need to discern our own hearts that are, that are bent towards sin. Our hearts are bent towards sin, and so we need this discernment from the Holy Spirit to be able to stay on track, to stay in alignment with Jesus and his call on our life. It's, it's the idea that um, Jeremiah gives us in Jeremiah 17, 9. Our hearts are wicked and deceptive beyond all our understanding. Nobody gets it. Nobody understands it. And so we can't trust our hearts. And so the Holy Spirit helps us with that. The Holy Spirit is also our defender. You and I are constantly accused by Satan. We just need to understand that. We want the Holy Spirit to speak into our lives. We know for a fact that Satan is constantly speaking into our lives, constantly telling us lies, getting us to doubt. And so when, when, the, when, when Satan does that, the Holy Spirit is our de defender, especially when, the Holy, when Satan accuses us of something, like right after we sin. It, isn't it interesting how Satan um, encourages us, pushes us towards sin, Tells us it's going to be great. Nobody's going to know. Not even God's. God's too busy to even know about your little sin here. And then the minute you commit the sin, Satan's right there saying, see, you suck. You're awful. You're terrible. That's the problem with Satan. So the Holy Spirit comes and is our defender in the midst of that and reminds us that no matter what, no matter what, if we're in Christ, we are not guilty before God. That is a big deal. We are beloved. We are sons and daughters of God if we are in Christ. And the Holy Spirit reminds us of that. And, and, and uh, he's also our power in order to obey the commands of Christ, which we need. And finally, the Holy Spirit is, in fact, the spirit of truth. You and I 
hear truth claims all the time. We hear Satan's truth claims. We hear the world's and the culture's truth claims. And then we hear God's truth claims. And the question is, which truth claims are we listening to? Which ones are we going to act upon? And the Holy Spirit helps us with that. And then in verse 17, Jesus says, The world cannot receive the Holy Spirit and does not know the Holy Spirit. And we're going to find out that Jesus is not only describing the Holy Spirit that way, but later on Jesus says that about himself in chapter 15. He says the same thing about himself. The world doesn't know me. The world can't receive me. You see, what Jesus is and what Jesus teaches and what the Holy Spirit convicts and helps with are all things that a fallen world corrupted by sin simply cannot receive or understand. The world and its foolishness are contrary to God's wisdom. And so we need the Holy Spirit to show us, to guide us, to convict us, to constrain us, and to compel us. That's all in 1 Corinthians. That's all in Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth in the first few chapters. You should read that about the wisdom of God is foolishness to human beings, and the wisdom of human beings is actually foolishness to God. There is a tremendous contrast there. And the last thing here, and I mentioned this already, but I'll, I'll, I'll say it again. Uh, we might read this and think that the Holy Spirit is somehow new, and he's not new. This is not new. Remember, the Spirit of God was the active agent in the creation of the universe. See Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. It's just that the Holy Spirit is going to have a new role now in this new covenant once Jesus leaves. Look at the next three verses, 18 through 20. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. Literally, what he's saying is, I'm not going to leave you desolate, and I'm not going to leave you alone. That's his promise. And in verses 18 and 19, he says, I'm going to come to you, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Now... What's the meaning of that statement by Jesus? There, there are two possibilities, and it probably means both of them. I would say it means both of them. Number one, this is a message to the disciples who are with him in that moment that they're going to see him during his post-resurrection and pre-ascension appearances, and they do see him. So in the temporal, he's, he's saying, you're going to see me again after I rise and before I ascend. But also, more generally, his disciples and us will see Jesus in and by the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. It is essential for us to know Jesus that the Holy Spirit comes and turns our heart. That there is this supernatural intervention by the Holy Spirit in our lives so that we can see the truth of Jesus. And, and, and so it is a fact that we are going to see Jesus again by the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And lastly here, the language of verse 20 is actually covenant language. If, if you know Jesus, if I know Jesus, and we embrace him as our Lord, you and I are inextricably connected to the Father, to the Son, and to the Spirit, and that cannot be taken away from us. We didn't do anything to gain our salvation. That was all Jesus on the cross and through the resurrection. And if we did nothing to gain our salvation, how can we do something to lose it? That should be, 
that should be, those should be words of encouragement and confidence to all of us who are in Christ that we cannot lose our, our standing before God. Look at the next four verses, 21 through 24. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Judas Iscariot, he's gone, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So verses 21 through 24 actually pick back up the opening verse of this passage, which is verse 15, where Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Love for Jesus shows itself, demonstrates itself, by our joyful obedience to his commands to love one another. So that word keeps in verse 21, keeps my commands, that word literally means to preserve and persist in. To preserve and persist in. And, and I know that word persist is important because, because we fail so often. So we have to keep getting back up and persisting in this endeavor. And, and, but the challenge really is our flesh. Our cha the challenge is our deceitful hearts. And, and again, I, I have always found the second half of Romans 7 to be so encouraging that it's even the Apostle Paul who struggles with this. It's even the Apostle Paul, super Christian, who says, the very things I shouldn't do, they're the things I find myself doing, and all the stuff I want to do, I struggle to do that. Because my flesh is at war with God. But at the end, he says, who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through our son, Jesus Christ. He knows from where our salvation and our power comes. And that's why we need the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who's going to walk us through all of those confrontations. So walk in the Spirit. Listen to the Spirit. Engage the Spirit. But very importantly, test the Spirit. Test the Spirit. Just because you hear something or feel something or you're certain it's, it's God speaking into your heart doesn't necessarily mean it is the Spirit of God. And so we're commanded by John in his later letters to test the Spirit's. And we do that by making sure that anything that we think the Holy Spirit is telling us, we check and see if it's biblical. If it's not biblical, it's not the Spirit. And then just personally in my own life, I found that when the Spirit speaks to me, a couple of other things happen as well. First of all, it's biblical. But second of all, it's something that wasn't my idea because I'm just not that bright. And third of all, it's usually something that I'm really not interested in doing. I had several other options that God could have given me that would have been much more pleasant for myself. But the Spirit comes along and says, you're going to do this. And then the Spirit reminds me, and it's really not you doing it because you don't have the power to do it. That's the whole point. That's why I'm here. And that's the joy we have in the Spirit. Look again at um, uh, verse 22, though. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Judas kind of asks the wrong question again, which is something a lot of the disciples do. And notice that Jesus does his usual thing where he really doesn't answer the, 
question that was asked, but rather gives information to a question that really should have been asked. He's like redirecting Judas here. And, and it, here you go. It's, it's this. Um, when I ask the question, God, why won't you save that person? In a sense, that's the wrong question. Because what I'm doing is I'm indicting God on his uh, discernment on how he's going to move in somebody's life. It's an indictment. It's an accusation against God when I say, why won't you save that person? Maybe God's response is, why aren't you praying for that person instead of getting upset with me? But here's the right question. I'll tell you, here's the right question. God, why did you save me? See, that indicates an understanding of grace and mercy and unconditional love that he would save me. That's a more correct question. But how about this question? Now, some of you may be going, well, what are the commands? How, Jesus, what are the commands? That is a good question, I think. And many of us already have an answer. Matthew 22, love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And yes, that would be a part of what Jesus wants to do when it comes to obeying his commands. And that is a great start. Connecting love with obedience is good and right. I will tell you that I listen to and submit to Jackie by, and I'm quoting Paul here, loving her as Christ loved the church because I love her. That's Ephesians 5, okay? Jesus calls for nothing less. I, there is a connection between love and obedience, love and listening under. Augustine wrote this, I don't know, 1,600 years ago. Love God and do whatever you please, for the soul trained in love to God will do nothing to offend the one who is beloved. But also remember that at the end of this love God and love your neighbor saying, Jesus adds something. He says, on these two commands, you will fulfill all the law and when he says all the law, he's talking about the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, the Mosaic Law. You'll fulfill all five of those books if you love God and love your neighbor. And you will also fulfill the prophets. By saying the prophets, he's referring to all the other 34 books of the Old Testament. You'll fulfill it all. You'll fulfill the entire Hebrew scriptures by loving God and loving others. So... Here are some other commands. You can find these in Leviticus 19, for instance. You can find them in the New Testament, New Testament as well. Here are some of the other commands that Jesus says we should keep because we love him and we should be enthusiastic about it. So, for instance, we should forgive others. We should love our enemies. We should serve others in humility. We should pray and we should worship. What else? There's more. There's this from Matthew chapter 25. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these, you did for me. Now, some of you might be thinking, okay, wait a minute. This kind of sounds like a works-based salvation now. What about this grace thing that you're always talking about? No, this is not a works-based salvation. We're talking about obeying the commands after we've been saved, after, after Jesus has extended his grace, love, and mercy to us. It is a proper response to this grace, great gift that we've been given. Um, 
A life of genuine faith and love will be a life that listens and obeys. So this is a response to the grace that we've been given. A number of years ago, um, I, I, had a, I had a very good friend. I met him through um, prison ministry. Um, he has since passed away uh, way too prematurely, but we used to like to, after he got out of prison, uh, we used to like to go hiking together. And we had uh, one Saturday driven up to Sedona, which, by the way, is now a nightmare, I understand. But we did it before Sedona got popular. So we drove up to Sedona, and there's a great hike up there uh, called Wilson Mountain. Has anybody ever hiked to Wilson? Okay, so I <laughs> wish I had a picture now. Anyway, there's a great hike called Wilson Mountain. Probably takes um, about three hours to get up, another three hours to get down. But it's absolutely beautiful. It's just absolutely spectacular. So we do the hike, come down. We're in my car, and we get back to the I-17, and we're, we're heading down I-17, and the speed limit is 75, and I'm going 78. Now, everybody in this room knows that if you're three miles over the speed limit, you're not going to get pulled over, right? Wrong. So we go by this cop, and my buddy says, <laughs> there was a cop sitting right by the side of the road, and I said, I'm only going 78. And then I look at my rearview mirror. Here comes the cop. He pulls me over. So there's that big uh, truck ramp right before you go down into Verde Valley. So that's where I pulled over. So I was kind of hoping a truck would smash us all to pieces. Anyway, um, so I pull over there. And check this out. The police officer, the first thing he did when he walked up to me was he said, you know, just because you're only going three miles over the speed limit doesn't mean I'm not going to pull you over. <laughs> so he knows, OK. So um, anyway, he takes all my information. He goes back to the car. And I look over at my buddy after a while, and, and he looks back at me, and I said, I'm getting a ticket. It's been too long for a warning. You know how the police officer will kind of come back pretty quickly if it's just going to be a warning? You know, He was there way too long. So I'm like, I'm getting a ticket. And he goes, yeah, you're getting a ticket. You know. So anyway, the police officer comes back, and he says, all right, Mr. Switzer, I'm writing you a warning. But you need to understand that 75 means 75. And I said, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. So we get in the car and we drive off. The rest of the drive on the way home, my buddy keeps looking over at my speedometer. <laughs> and he starts mocking me because I won't go faster than 75. He says, that guy really scared you. And I said, no, 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 you need to understand. What if I go 78 or 80 or 85 again, and he's the same guy that pulls me over? He gave me grace, and my response is going to be to, to just spit in his face over it. I'm not going to go over 75 until some other time when he, maybe he's not on the road again. <laughs> <clears throat> but you see the point. I'm, I just, I, I, the worst thing that could happen, worse than the ticket, would be having to face that person who gave me the grace and, and, and to admit that I, I took his gift and I just stomped on it. This is a response to the grace that God gives us. James reminds us of this truth in his letter. He writes, as a body without the spirit is dead, faith without deeds is dead. So how we live, how we walk, what we do is the fruit of the reality of our inner being or even our unsaved being. Jesus gives us the flip side of this in Mark chapter 7. He describes the one who lives in the flesh the one not living with the Holy Spirit. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. 
For from within, out of the hearts of man, come evil thoughts, sexual, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. That's one of the most convicting passages in the Gospels for me, because I look at that, and I just know that's my heart of flesh without the Holy Spirit. I'm guilty of all of those things. Even if they are just thoughts, even if I don't act on them, it's just like without the Spirit, that's just where I go, and that's a problem. We need the Holy Spirit. And so now we move into that last paragraph that Sherry read uh, for us. And in these first couple of verses, we'll get just a little bit more about the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring you to remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I live with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, for I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does, when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father." Rise, let us go from here. So the Holy Spirit is sent by the Father, and the Holy Spirit, according to this passage, does three things. He convicts us of sin. We need that. The fact that God has created us as rational beings is both a blessing and a curse. The blessing is that we can figure, out, we can figure things out in ways that no other part of our creation can figure out because we're rational. And, and it's funny, there's this book, I think it was originally written in 2006 by a Harvard psychologist named Daniel Gilbert. It's called Stumbling on Happiness. And he says at the very beginning, this is not a book about how to find happiness. Um, there is no methodology to find happiness, which Harvard psychologists will all tell you. Anybody who's seeking after happiness as their primary goal in life will never find it. That's your problem. You're seeking after happiness. Happiness is a byproduct of other activities. Anyway, I have gone back to this book time and time and time again, and I just started rereading it for the fifth time. It's that good. Not a Christian book, but man, it really helps with how um, different human beings are from the rest of creation in the fact that we are the only part of creation that can think about, understand, and connect the future to our present and past. Yes, animals understand that there's a future. Understand, animals understand um, the idea of nexting, but we go beyond that. We're rational beings. We can figure this out. And that is a blessing. We can, we can figure things out. We, God made us rational beings. But it's also a curse. And the reason is because you and I are able to rationalize away any sin or behavior that we have done. No matter what it is. You get caught in a sin. We immediately rationalize. Somebody else made me do it. It's somebody else's fault. Then after that doesn't work, well, I was forced to, I had to. This is why I needed to do it. If you were in my situation, anybody in my situation would have done it. Uh, the, being a rational 
Human being is both a blessing and a curse, and so we need the Holy Spirit in the midst of our broken rationality to hold us accountable. Second of all, the Holy Spirit enlightens. That word enlightens means to reveal or to teach us. And what he enlightens us about is God's faithfulness to us, his righteousness and his wisdom and his will that we should be pursuing. And then third, the Holy Spirit commends us and commends to us and commends for us. That word also can mean advocate or encourage or clarify. The Holy Spirit commends God's word and teachings of Jesus to us. The Holy Spirit commends others to us and commends us to others, especially in times of desperate need. That's a, that's a great gift. And then the Holy Spirit commends wisdom to us, even in, and especially if that wisdom is at odds with what we might prefer. And then verse 27, Jesus gives us peace, but his peace is nothing like the world's. The peace of the world, the peace that the world tries to sell us, is an overrated, unachievable, utopian promise that all of our problems can be solved, and someday they will, that all of our suffering will be eliminated, and someday it will, and that all of our questions will be answered, and that someday they will. Humans have been trying this idea for millennia. How has it worked out for us? It hasn't worked out very well. And in fact, I would argue quite aggressively, that some of our worst times in life are the result of us trying to do exactly those things as human beings under our own hubris, under our own power, under our own foolish wisdom. Jesus is the only answer. And what we need to remember is that the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, this is really important, the peace of God is not the absence of turmoil, but it's the presence of God. God, God never promised us that we would have no turmoil in our life. In fact, Jesus specifically promises the opposite. He says, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, is the presence of God, not the absence of turmoil. And then verse 28, Jesus says, for the Father is greater than I. And I've heard people actually say, see, See, even Jesus admits he's not God. He admits it right there. Okay, uh, some of you know one of my favorite sayings is adventures in missing the point. And this is, anybody who says that, you're missing the point of what Jesus is saying here. One of the functions of the Trinity, one of the many functions, but one of the functions of the Trinity is as a template for how we should engage in community and relationship as, as disciples of Jesus, as fellow believers. All three of the persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all three of them are constantly outdoing one another in showing honor to each other. This is Jesus showing honor to the Father. That's what he's doing. All three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are humble and submitted when they're in the presence of each other and when they're talking about each other. They're constantly 
pushing each other forward. The Father is always talking about how great the Son is and how great the Spirit is. Jesus is always talking about how great the Father is and how he doesn't do anything without the Father and how great the Spirit is going to be. And the Spirit is always pushing us toward the Father and the Son. They're shy towards one another. They're yielded toward one another. They push and for and advocate for one another. And they are also known more by who they are with than who they are alone. Their identity is in each other and not in some construct. That's a picture of how we as Christ followers are to live in yielded community and relationship with one another. In verse 29, Jesus says, And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. When what takes place? His resurrection, ascension, and the arrival of the Holy Spirit some weeks later. They're going to be like, Oh, I get it now. And, they, and that's exactly what happened to them. And then verse 30, let me just reread that. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. Satan, who is the prince of this world, will wreak havoc on the world. But he has no power over Jesus. And really, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he doesn't need to have power over us either. He doesn't need to have power over us. No matter what, Whenever we encounter the nudging or the invitation or the enticement of, of Satan's schemes, we need to draw on the Holy Spirit. Satan has power, but he has no power, leverage, or advantage over Jesus. So Jesus has actually won. The problem is, is the battle still rages on for us, and so we must also fight. But we fight in the Spirit, and we fight with the armor of God. That's Ephesians chapter 6, the last half of chapter 6. You can read that. Maybe you've been around some church or Christian circles and you've heard the phrase, it's the already but not yet. That's what it is. Jesus has already won his victory over Satan's sin and the cross, but we have not yet uh, gotten to that place of pure victory because we're still in this world battling. But we will also eventually get there, and that's what Jesus is telling his uh, disciples as well. So... Listen up, this is important. I'm going to mention something here that will likely, I just know based on experience, will likely raise some hackles and cackles from some of you. The scholar Andreas Kostenberger makes the point that there is no such thing as an autonomous person. There's no such thing as an autonomous person. Now, culture tells us all the time about our autonomy. Culture teaches us that. But Kostenberger says, you're not autonomous. Don't fall for that lie. There's no such thing. Those who choose not to believe in and follow Jesus are not, as they say, their own person. They are, in fact, serving Satan. They're not their own person. And part of Satan's scheme, as both Paul and Jesus teach, is that while you are serving him, Satan actually leads you to believe that you're doing something good, that you're a person of virtue, and that you're really only serving yourself. That's why you say, I am my own person. He leads you to believe that you are autonomous. That's part of Satan's scheme. The greatest trick the devil ever played was to make people think he didn't exist. That's his greatest trick. The good news, the gospel, is that Jesus has put all of this away in his victory over the in the resurrection. And the reason that's important is because 
If you truly believe that Satan can't snare you with his schemes, you are already defeated. You just don't know it. But if you're in Christ, you have victory over that. It, it, in Christ gives you a level of discernment that you've just never experienced before. So Jesus once again calls us to faith, trust, and love. And if we truly love him, we're going to obey him. Jesus also reminds us that though Satan is still at work, he will never defeat Jesus or us because of his resurrected power over Satan's sin and death and because of the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so Jesus also gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit who is with us even now. I'll tell you, it's my prayer and hope today that we would leave this place today knowing and embracing the fact that we are in desperate need of the Holy Spirit and that we should not be afraid of the Holy Spirit. I know sometimes people can get anxious, Christians could get anxious about the Holy Spirit and I think mostly it's, it's because he's a little bit more difficult to understand than Jesus. Jesus is a little bit more concrete, not so sure about the Spirit, but we do need him. He's God. He's essential. And as we wrap up, I want you to consider this. I want to come back to this word helper that Jesus uses. I think Jesus picked that word very specifically because it's an important Old Testament word. It's an important ancient Hebrew word. It's an Old Testament word that relates to God and his creation. The word in the Greek is what was used to translate the ancient Hebrew scriptures into Koine Greek. It's the word that translated the ancient Hebrew word helper. The word is ezer. And that word ezer is used throughout the Old Testament as a word that identifies God as his people's helper. And second of all, it's the word that God used to describe Eve. When Eve was created for Adam, she was his ezer konegdo, his complementary helper, his complementary partner. So it goes all the way back to creation. So his disciples, when they heard this word helper, they knew that Jesus was using this full-bodied theological word that went all the way through the Old Testament scriptures, all the way back to creation to help them understand how important the Holy Spirit is. And it's my prayer that we understand that as well. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word and its truth. I say that every week. Um, I don't want it to become rote or routine because we do thank you for your word and its truth. Your word has power. Your word has authority. Your word points us to the correct things. Your word gives us wisdom. Your word helps us to understand what foolishness is. And, and ultimately and most importantly, your word points us to your son, Jesus, who is our redemption, who is our grace, who is our mercy. God, help us to understand that. Help us as we go through these chapters in John, this, these very meaty chapters, these famous last words of Jesus. Help us to, to know who you are that we'd know you more clearly, that we'd come to your wisdom, and that we would seek after your will. And then give us the courage to live that out and to actually follow you and obey your commands. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to sing another song and a third. We're doing a song and the doxology. And as we do that, we're also going to come forward and take communion.
We have the communion sets up here. You come into the um, middle aisle and break off and pick up your communion, take it back to your chair, and when you're ready, you can take the elements, and then if you're led by the Spirit, if you're ready, you can then stand and join in with the, the singing, and certainly at the end when we do uh, the doxology as well. But again, just as I prayed about my words, thank you for your word and its truth, I pray also, I pray also that taking communion would not be routine or rote. We only do it once a week. And so it really shouldn't be routine or rote. We should be reminded of what Jesus teaches about this. That the elements are a picture of him on the cross giving us freedom from sin, redeeming us from our own devices, reconciling us to God and giving us life. That the bread is his broken body and that the wine or the juice is the covenant of his blood, the new covenant of his blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. So we both confess and celebrate when we walk into that aisle. We confess our need for Jesus. We celebrate the fact that he has given our lives, his life for ours, and now we give our lives to him. So let's do that now.
Again, thank you for being here with us uh, to worship on this Sunday morning. Uh, I'm just going to let the doxology be our benediction, our blessing, and our sending prayer today. So praise God from whom all blessings go. Go and live all of life all for Jesus, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>